0: Good evening, it is 5 p.m. and you're tuned in to Kingston Currents here on CFRC 11.9 FM. I'm CFRC's Broadcast Generalist Christina Laurie here to keep you up to date on all things Limestone local news. Before we get into our interviews for this week, here are a few of your local headlines. Have Your Say City Launches 2024 Budget Engagement. The community is invited to help shape the city of Kingston's 2024 operating and capital budgets and to provide valuable feedback on future budget engagements. In a quote from Desiree Kennedy, Chief Financial Officer and City Treasurer, it is important for Kingstonians to be informed of how the city's budget works and to have the opportunity to influence how their tax dollars are allocated. We encourage residents to provide input on what matters to them. This is your community and your budget, so make sure you have your say. As of July 21st, residents can visit Get Involved Kingston to complete a survey and to share their ideas on the approach to future budget engagements. Staff are also planning in-person pop-ups later this summer. Watch the Get Involved Kingston project page for further details on how you can get involved. Once again, community members are encouraged to visit the Get Involved Kingston project page to learn more about the 2024 budget engagements and to share their input. To complete a survey by phone or request a mailed copy of the survey, you can call 613-546-0000. The City of Kingston presents unique naming rights opportunity for premier large entertainment venue. The City of Kingston is thrilled to announce an exceptional opportunity for businesses to submit proposals for the highly sought after naming rights of a large entertainment venue currently known as the Leon Center in downtown Kingston, Ontario. This exclusive partnership will provide unprecedented exposure and brand recognition in one of Canada's most vibrant hubs. The selected naming rights partner will have the privilege of associating its esteemed brand with this world class venue, capturing the attention of millions of visitors, fans, and media outlets. Boasting a prime location at the intersection of Ontario Street and the tragically hip way, this venue stands as a centerpiece of Kingston's entertainment landscape. The arena, with a seating capacity of 5,000 for sporting events and 6,700 for concerts, serves as the proud home of the Kingston Frontenacs of the Ontario Hockey League and has hosted a multitude of exhilarating events, including concerts by global icons and thrilling sports spectacles. Lucretia Turner, Director, of Recreation and Leisure Services State's the large venue entertainment center has had amazing support for naming rights partners, including Rogers Rock and Leons. We are looking forward to building a new relationship with a partner to connect with the passionate community of Kingston and the region. By securing naming rights, the chosen partner will unlock a myriad of benefits, including exceptional brand visibility through prominent exterior signage, widespread media coverage, and a captive audience of diverse demographics. Interested parties can visit cityofkingston.ca slash business to request a copy of an expression of interest document. Businesses are invited to submit a simple proposal highlighting their brand synergy with the venue's rich legacy, commitment to community engagement, and innovative marketing strategies. The deadline for proposal submissions is Wednesday, August 30th at 3 p.m. A review community comprising of city staff, industry experts, and community leaders will meticulously evaluate all submissions and recommend a naming rights partner to city council for consideration. The City of Kingston welcomes proposals from local, national, and international companies eager to leave an indelible mark on Kingston's cultural landscape. Once again, for proposal submission guidelines and additional information, you can visit cityofkingston.ca slash business. Changes are coming to Kingston's Bellevue House. A new management plan for the Bellevue House, National Historic Site in Kingston, has been tabled in Parliament. The Bellevue House, located on Centre Street, was home to Sir John A. Macdonald from 1848 to 1849. The current description of the site is a place to explore the complex legacy of Canada's first Prime Minister. Under the Parks Canada Act, it is required that site management plans be reviewed every 10 years. A decade since the last review, this year's review has resulted in several strategic changes to the exhibit presented in the house. The creation of the new management plan was informed by consultations with Indigenous partners, the site's Community Advisory Committee, local and regional residents, partners and stakeholders, the public and community organizations. This includes discussions Parks Canada had with the Mohawks of the Bay of Quinte, as well as Kingston Region's Urban Indigenous Community about the direction of Bellevue House. The Community Advisory Committee was also newly formed during the development of the new management plan. The management plan for Bellevue House also includes input from other partners and stakeholders, local residents and visitors. The new plan for the Bellevue House identifies three key strategies moving forward with perceivable goals to measure progress in these categories. Firstly, they aim to present an evolving understanding of Sir Johnny MacDonald's legacy by addressing this piece of history from multiple points of view, being open to continuously updating messages, and engaging in challenging discussions. Some of the targets included in this strategy include, by 2024, a dialogue be initiated with local Indigenous partners through respectful, mutually beneficial engagement efforts. And by 2025, regular meetings be occurring with Indigenous partners and groups of varying cultural heritage, with the intent of identifying meaningful and valued outcomes and developing new offers. Their second key strategy includes increasing awareness and enhancing the site's presence and leadership in the city's network of historic places. This will include increasing the site's involvement in community events and local initiatives. One of the measurable goals they aim to achieve is doubling their social media followers by 2027. Key strategy three seeks to provide a renewed heritage experience. To do this, they aim to continue to modernize the experiences provided at Bellevue House and develop new programming content and including immersive activities to be more inclusive of all target audiences. In a quote from the Bellevue House Community Advisory Committee, Sir John A. Macdonald is an integral part of Canada's history and the Bellevue House is a historic symbol of that story. However, we need a more complete picture of the man's legacy, a picture that includes everyone. We will continue to support this management plan as Bellevue House National Historic Site strives to demonstrate a commitment to ensuring that all people from this diverse Canadian society may feel and know that their part in that history is accurately remembered and shared." have your say and create a more livable Kingston. The city is collecting feedback and input from community groups, partner organizations, businesses, and community members on a draft community standards bylaw. On June 29th, 2022, city council directed staff to prepare a bylaw that would help deter certain types of nuisance behaviors in the community. The plan to prepare this bylaw was discussed at length at council last year, but now the draft is available for review on Get Involved Kingston. The draft released last week includes stipulations regarding odors, construction materials and construction dust, idling, feeding of wildlife, textile collection sites and flyers, safe use of public spaces, and damage to city property. In a quote from Andrew Reeson, Senior Legal Consul, the safety and well-being of our community members and visitors and a clean and enjoyable environment where everyone feels included are priorities of the City of Kingston. The vision of the Community Standards Bylaw is for community members to continue working together to create a livable community, as previously laid out in the City's Good Neighbor Guide. Feedback will be considered as staff further refine the bylaw to ensure it meets the needs of community members. Community members are invited to review and comment on the draft of the Community Standards Bylaw until August 18th. This can be done at getinvolved.cityofkingston.ca. If you would prefer to provide comments by phone or require accommodation to provide comments, you can call 613-546-0000. In a piece of campus news, Queen's University professor of psychiatry, Dr. Ann Duffy, is the lead author on a paper advocating to prioritize the needs of children at familial risk. Children living with parents with severe mental illness, such as depression, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia, are at high risk for developing mental illness themselves. Written by a group of international experts just published in the Journal of Nature Mental Health. In a quote from Dr. Ann Duffy Outside of safety concerns, the well being needs of these high risk children are not proactively considered, nor are care pathways organized to systemically address early intervention needs. This intergenerational transmission of severe mental illness is thought to be the result of an interplay between genetic, biological, psychological, and social factors. The approach to prevention and early intervention should be tailored to the developmental needs of the children in their family, as opposed to a one-size-fits-all approach. This landmark paper is a call to action and gives guidelines as to next steps in the development of policy and prevention designed to support the well-being of children at familial risk. The article highlights why these children are an overlooked public health priority population and points to research that aims to alleviate the risk of developing mental illness and stopping the intergenerational transmission of severe mental illness. I sat down with Dr. Duffy to talk about her paper entitled The Wellbeing of Children at Familial Risk of Severe Mental Illness, An Overlooked Yet Crucial Prevention and Early Intervention Opportunity. Here's what she had to say. To start us off, would you like to introduce yourself and maybe provide a bit of your background in
1: psychiatry? Sure, thank you and thanks for having me. So I'm a professor of psychiatry at Queen's University. I'm also a visiting professor at the University of Oxford in the UK, and I'm a, a, a clinician scientist, so a psychiatrist by training who's focused uh, my career on understanding the onset of mental illness in young people. Um, And so I trained for psychiatry in Ottawa, at the University of Ottawa, and in medicine at the University of Calgary. And I've been at Queen's since 2016. And really, that was the continuation at that time of a really pioneer studying in children at familial risk, of developing serious mood disorders because they had a parent with bipolar disorder. And then since that time, we've continued that work which is um, extended for 25 years now, funded by CIHR, Canadian Institutes of Health Research, and also expanded what we've learned from um, the offspring study to a study of university students um, starting at Queen's University and now expanding nationally and also internationally in the UK.
0: Well, thank you for that background. You got into it there that uh, the Children of Mentally Ill Parents has been a research focus for you for quite a long
1: time. How did this topic come into your field of vision and capture your attention? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question because actually it was driven by the families that I was working with as a resident training in psychiatry in Ottawa. So I was involved in, uh, there was a mentorship program where um, uh, trainees in in the specialty of psychiatry, so in the residency program, could opt into a research stream, which is so important to have clinicians involved in research translating findings to practice. And so Ottawa were ahead of the game in that instance, and they had a research mentorship program. I joined that and I was working with a very talented team under Paul Groff's direction at the time, looking for the genes, quote unquote, for bipolar disorder. And we were interviewing family members who were related to a bipolar um, patient. And the family members were all adults because uh, in those days we we felt that you had to, to do genetic studies, you had to study people who were already past the peak period of risk. So we knew who was going to get ill and who wouldn't get ill. And um, most of those adult relatives of bipolar patients were very interested in research because they were concerned about the risk to their children. And in those days, we had no good data to inform us as to individual risk prediction or even what the early course of bipolar disorder really looked like. And so that's when I went to the group and said, you know, as an adolescent psychiatrist in training, I'd really be interested in studying these children and mapping the onset into mood disorders and looking for uh, targets where we could maybe mitigate that risk. And then improve individualized risk prediction. So that was the beginning of what we called the Flourish Offspring Study, which now is over 25 years uh, in the making.
0: I mean, a lot of the research you've been talking about has been pioneered in the last few years. It's um, quite an underserved community to begin with, just as well getting into some of the background on the topic of your paper published in the Journal of Nature Mental
1: Health. Well thank you and this paper was actually a collaboration between experts from complementary disciplines in the field because since our pioneering study that started in Ottawa with these families we've continued to work within the families and expanding across pedigrees and this actually became a very important study really mapping as I said the trajectory into bipolar disorder for the first time and then looping back and looking at biopsychosocial risk factors that um, Mm -hmm. contributed to the risk. And since that time, a number of different research groups around the world in Scandinavia, in the UK, in the EU have also launched similar studies of children at familial risk. And there is also a cohort study at the parallel to my time in children of depressed parents. And that was Myrna Wiseman's group in the US. And so all of us um, together collaborated on this paper because despite the overwhelming evidence that these severe mental illnesses, whether that be bipolar disorder, uh, clinical major depression or schizophrenia, these illnesses run in families. And yet we don't have a sort of organized care pathway to bridge between child and adult services to look at sort of health promotion, proactive um, prevention in these children who are at significant risk of becoming ill themselves. I should also put a caveat though that um, Even though the risk is um, significantly elevated, if you have a a first degree family member with one of of these illnesses, the likelihood of you getting sick is still less than the likelihood of being well. So you're more likely to be well than ill. I don't want to, you know, frighten anybody. But uh, on the other hand, the, the risk is significantly greater. So eight to tenfold risk of developing bipolar disorder with a parent affected and two to three-fold risk of developing depression as an example.
0: I'm sure it's a large combination of various different factors, but what are some of the reasons that this population is more at risk
1: of developing these illnesses? Right. So that's another great question, because remember when I was saying that we started off looking, quote unquote, for the gene or genes for bipolar disorder? Mm -hmm. And since at that time, you know, over the last 25 years, we've appreciated that genes, we inherit certain um, predispositions. But turning on or switching down the um, amplifying the the gene function um, can be moderated by the environment and by our exposures. So in other words, it's not just a static risk. So okay. how you know what we're exposed to in terms of early adversity, even in the womb prenatally during the first two or three years of life and then onward, the choices that we make as we're evolving into more independent, individuals, such as whether or not we use recreational drugs, um, uh, our lifestyle, our health. So all of those factors contribute to um, the likelihood that somebody with the genetic risk will eventually develop the illness. Um, So there's quite a lot that can be done proactively to reduce that risk. And we're also in the process of, um, as a research community worldwide, sort of testing early interventions um, that are Highly acceptable to children and their families and young people, um, but would reduce the risk of getting sick.
0: What do you think are some of the reasons that this population has been overlooked in the past?
1: Well, I think it's the way that historically we've set up care pathways. So, for example, Mm -hmm. the adult and child world are sort of siloed. So, when you turn 18, not only in the Canadian system, but in many systems around the world, you graduate out of child services and go to adult services. And when you're in adult services, we don't tend to ask about the children um, other than sort of worrying about um, sort of child protection needs, you know, if a child's at risk, for example, of harm. But we don't think about, um, gee, you know, could we do um, proactive um, prevention and could we bolster coping resources for the families and their children of these parents because we're not connected to the child world directly to do that kind of Mm -hmm. proactive sort of health promoting work. Um, The other thing is, is we don't in adult services tend to monitor um, the psychopathology evolving in the children that that would go fall to, you know, presenting to child services as an individual patient. So there isn't this focus on families in our system. It's focused on individual patients. Um, And we can we obviously do, quote unquote, family therapy in adult psychiatric services but the target is usually not about health promotion in the at-risk children it's usually around functioning of the, the identified patient so for that reason the and that's what this paper was advocating for was you know this is a major overlooked public health priority and it would be very cost effective and morally Um, an obligation actually to ensure that these children not only are safe from harm, which is the focus of child protection, but these children have what they need emotionally and practically to thrive um, because these children can thrive. And we've seen that in our own studies.
0: Uh, Moving on to what you were just getting into there. What are some of the methods of identification and prevention that you consider in this paper?
1: So the, the paper takes the developmental approach. So in other mm-hmm. words, the target of, of health promotion and prevention would depend on the age of the child. So obviously, um, planning pregnancy in a mother who herself might have a severe mental illness is really really pivotal so that the mom has all of the prenatal support available to her um, and that um, the parents are supported um, so that there's no undue stress and nutrition and all the prenatal care is, is um, the best that it can be. And then Because postpartum is a very high risk time for patients with psychiatric illnesses um, for recurrences, that that mom um, postpartum would have the support, again, needed to make sure that she was well and as well as she could be, um, you know, without being intrusive to partner with patients and really make sure that they have what they need tailored to their specific situation. And then during early childhood, the focus then becomes the attachment relationship and the, the family of this young child. Um, making sure that the the parents have the skills that they need, the the, um, confidence, the the parenting um, competence that they need to be able to meet that child's needs. And in themselves, that they're in the best level of remission that they can be in their own illness so that they have the resources to parent. And then as the child ages and starts moving out into the community, that the focus then shifts more to navigating and ensuring that the child has the resources to cope um with um, connections with the outside world, becoming a productive member of their school, making friendships that the parents um are are still well and able to support that evolving autonomy. And then obviously, in adolescence, the target more becomes the young person and making sure that they make, healthy choices. So, you know, avoidance of recreational drug use is huge for people at a genetic predisposition for psychiatric illness. So that's really, really important to avoid using cannabis and any other drugs, for example, Um, getting enough sleep, coping with stress, and um, those kinds of um, focus. Absolutely.
0: And um, of course, folks can get all the details by reading your paper, but I was wondering if you could provide some of the highlights in the paper for you. Whether it was because you learned something new or you thought it would just really stand out
1: to readers. Well, I thought it was really um, important to see that no matter where you are are in the world, this is an over this group children. Um, of parents with severe mental illness are an overlooked group who are uh, easily identifiable within our current systems and yet left until they become symptomatic and have to present individually to the system. So that's, I think, a a really missed opportunity that would be uh, an easy, cost-effective, you know, uh, initiative um, that would, you know, our children are our society's future. And so we, we really should be investing in these populations at risk for severe mental illness. So I thought that was really telling that across the world, this was um, the same kind of um, overlooked priority. The other thing that has really come out of this work was what an absolute um, pleasure and how effective these families have been at not only Mm -hmm. um, partnering in this work that's now over 25 years, but really advocating for themselves and their families. And it's just been an absolute honor to to work with these families and i'm so uh grateful for all that i've learned from them once again that was dr Ann duffy on her paper the well-being of
0: children at familial risk of severe mental illness and overlooked yet crucial prevention and early intervention opportunity you can read the full piece in the journal of nature mental health Hiroshima Day is coming up on August 6th. Hiroshima Day is celebrated every year to promote peace among nations and to create awareness about the devastating results of nuclear weapons. Hiroshima Day is observed on August 6th to commemorate the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, Japan in 1945 at the end of World War II. I sat down with Judy Wyatt with the Hiroshima Day Coalition to discuss some of the events they have planned to spread awareness and commemorate this day. To start us off, I was wondering if you could speak a bit about the film screening you have coming up at the Screening Room. Um, I believe this is a free event, and I was wondering if you could chat about the film of choice.
2: The film is a made-for-TV film that came out in 1983. And despite the fact that it's quite old by now, it still has really excellent reviews. And the film is particularly shocking because it is a depiction of what a nuclear war dropped on the United States would look like. And the, the, this, the film is set in a small town in Kansas, and the premise is that a nuclear bomb has been launched, and so we follow the characters from the moment that they hear that a nuclear bomb is on the way, and we watched their fear and their panic, and then we watched what happens when it explodes, and we watch the aftermath. And this film was shown in 1983 on television, And it got a lot of press attention and many, it was quite controversial, even before it was shown because many people thought that this wasn't an appropriate subject for television, it was going to be too graphic, too gruesome. I'm a retired high school teacher, and I remember how much my students uh, talked about that film before we watched it. And of course, that was at the time of Destination TV, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, it was widely, widely watched. And the students really, really had a lot to say about it the next day. It's it's a very, very powerful film. People talk about nuclear war as if they can know something about it or can imagine it. I don't think many people can really imagine what it's like. So we are going to show that film at the screening room. So that will be on Wednesday, July 6th, and the film will start at 5.45 in the Roxy Theater. It's it's one of the smallest theaters at the screening room.
0: Thank you for the details on that so folks can um, attend that event. Um, You were also just saying before we started this interview, you were at Novel Idea getting um, the window display set up that you have there. I was wondering if you could speak a bit to that and what that will entail.
2: Well, we've got two large banners, one that reads Nagasaki, one reads Hiroshima. The letters are vertical in black felt on a white, long white um, piece of fabric. And when we use them on the day of Hiroshima Day, August sixth. They're always there in the background, and as I said, I've been involved with this event for forty years. And those banners were at the, the very first event I ever attended, so they're they're more than forty years old. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of relics for us. People who look at the display will see many books that are available at Novel Idea and magazines that are pertinent to the subject. Um, they'll also see a paper crane that's suspended in front of a banner that has been painted for a previous Hiroshima Day event. And if they look carefully around, they will see paper lanterns that have been used in the past. For many years, we've had families create uh, paper lanterns, which we have floated on styrofoam uh, with a candle inside in a, in a water. We've done that at the, uh, the fountain across from City Hall, Confederation Basin, and then we've done that in the pool at McBurney Park. And this year we won't have lanterns floating, but we will have them available for people to see, and we will light them when dusk falls. I was wondering
0: if you could speak a bit to the significance of lanterns for Hiroshima Day, I believe there is specific meaning behind them, is
2: that true? Yes, the lanterns are a way to acknowledge the passing of a spirit, remembering the spirit of somebody who's died and they are lit in in memory of of people. And this is something that that occurs in in Asian countries. And so when we've done this over the years, we've had people decorate them in whatever way they feel is appropriate. And some of them we have saved throughout the years. Many of our lanterns have things written on them in Japanese because in the summers, Queens often has um, an English language class for Japanese students to attend. And many times we've had Japanese students who are in Canada just for the summer attend our ceremony and are very pleased and touched that we so far from their home continue to remember this terrible event that they certainly know about. Mm -hmm. And I believe there's also opportunity for lantern making. That's true, that's on this coming Sunday.
0: Once again that was Judy Wyatt with the Hiroshima Day Coalition. You can visit the window display at Novel Idea Bookstore until August 7th. You can attend their free film screening of The Day After at The Screening Room on Wednesday July 26th at 5.45pm and you can also attend their lantern making event at Memorial Market on Sunday July 30th at 10am. And finally you can attend the Peace Ceremony on Sunday August 6th at 7.30pm. You can also be sure to tune into Kingston Currents next week to hear more from Judy Wyatt about Hiroshima Day. CFRC's news programming is brought to you by the generous support of the community 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 Radio Fund of Canada under the Local Journalism Initiative. Be sure to stay tuned for more CFRC programming coming up next.